0: Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as the mountain leaves begin to burn in autumn orange and red here in the mountains of Utah. Today's guest is YouTuber and author Daniel Green. Daniel is the writer and performer behind the hugely popular fantasy news, YouTube, and Twitch channels, as well as the author of the epic fantasy novellas Breach of Peace and Rebels Creed. Daniel and I chat about what it's like to be on the other side of the reviewer's crosshairs, the massive amount of work it takes to make it on YouTube, the upcoming Wheel of Time show, and more. Enjoy my conversation with Daniel Green.
1: I'm self-taught as a programmer and an editor. And I think the editing is just as hard to learn as a learning a new computer language. Like it's you can get fine at editing pretty easily, but getting good. I'm still not good. Like it takes a lot of time and effort, especially sound engineering. Holy crap.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I, I I, knew, like, jumping into it, I, I had taken a class on, um, I think, interviewing or something like that. It was a communications class in college. And I we had, like, most of the class had been, like, doing an interview, but, like, every step of the way, like, including your own editing and all that. And I remember enjoying it at the time, uh, but it's, like, one of those skills that if I was younger, then, yeah, I would probably want to learn it. But like, you know, man, I'm I'm many years into my career. I'm in my <laughs> mid thirties. Screw that.
1: It's funny. As soon as I found like stability in my career and like a little bit of like that, like, OK, I'm not fighting for like food and paycheck. The the urge to go learn new things. I was like, no, I'm happy. I'm very safe and secure and to master this craft. And I don't feel the need to put my hand into any other pots
0: anymore. Well, I I find that I fight with myself, even to this day, to some extent, a lot less than I used to, but I fight with myself on, uh, well, this is a, a thing that I could probably learn over, you know, a week or a weekend and I should just do it myself and not pay anybody any money. And then I like have to stop myself and be like, okay, if I spent that time writing, like what would my hourly wage be and hiring someone else to do things? is a fraction of that so you know it's just you do that math once you get into your career and you know what you do for a living like you got to do the math of what's worth actually spending the time on and not
1: well you you fall in a similar trap of me where you've monetized what i imagine was a hobby for a long time i imagine you were writing this stuff and doing a long time for a hobby after you monetize your hobbies though i've found that i i have a really hard time relaxing because everything i used to do for relaxing video games writing reading that's work and so what do you do now to like this is my non-work related time that i'm not going to monetize what is that because i still haven't found it
0: (laughs) no i i'm i'm totally with you i yeah i've talked about that on this podcast a few times that like i don't read anymore uh which is like heartbreaking because when i was 15 i read everything and just voraciously and and now i just you know, like I pick up a book maybe once a year. I do audiobooks still, but almost all nonfiction. And it's just like, it's like, like where all that joy got destroyed. And I know a lot of authors keep it somehow and they still do lots of reading and stuff. I don't know how they do it though.
1: For me, it seems about, I've, I've interviewed a lot of authors and they, there's no middle ground. They either eviscerate books and are just going through for inspiration for research or they're with you and they're just, I can't read anymore. I think I would be in that camp if it wasn't for my job forcing me to keep reading because all the time when I'm reading now, I'm constantly thinking about what I want to put in my next book and I can't focus on the story in front of me because it's like, Oh, I have an idea. I want to go write that. Yeah. It's it's becoming a real struggle, which is why I'm doing more movie and manga reviews and stuff like that. Cause reviewing like Lord of the Rings, I'm like, no, there's 80 things in here that are great inspiration. I can't
0: focus on them right now. Yeah, no, it's I'm, I'm totally with you on that. It's, it's a weird place to be at where you suddenly realize, oh man, I used to like really enjoy this. And now it's not that I don't enjoy it. It just feels like work. It feels like I've gone into the office, you know, when I pick up an epic fantasy,
1: I also get filled with a lot of jealousy when someone's done like a great idea and they've executed it wonderfully. I'm like, why couldn't I think of that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, that that's, uh that's definitely one of those like creeping things. Like, I don't know. I, I That's something I I need to start asking people on this podcast about that because professional jealousy is one of those weird little insidious things that I think, like, I mean, a good example is just me doing my research for this interview and going, Daniel has 340,000 YouTube subscribers. What the crap, man? Like, <laughs> like that kind of like. It, it's like I, I feel like the professional jealousy that writers get uh, and kind of in the creative arts, it tends to be more like it's like tiny jealousies. Like, it's not like, you know, I hate that person. I want to steal their job. I'm going to have to, like, you know, arrange an uh, like an accident at the factory. Uh, <laughs> it, it's like a it's like little jealousies of like, man, they did that better than me. And I'm kind of mad that I didn't do it better. Well, I,
1: I fully believe everyone has jealousy. If people are saying I have no jealousy, liar, <laughs> All I can say to that, but like it, I actually find myself, the more I like someone, the more prone to jealousy I am. Like the more I get to know someone, the more it's like, I love you. I support you. This is great. At the same time, I really wish I had done that first. Like, it's like, oh, that's because the better I get to know them, I also get to see how they came up with the idea. And it's like, why didn't I do that? Like I was right there. God damn. Oh, <laughs>
0: uh, uh, like from my early career like the greatest moment of relief for me well the greatest moment of of stress and then relief was finding out that this guy i'd never heard of Django wexler was coming out with a flintlock epic fantasy the same year as me and then the relief came finding out my book was coming out like two months before his <laughs>
1: <laughs> like i'm that's that's my uh, moment I, where you're like, sorry, not sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I I have since become friends with Django. He's great. And and lots of people are writing in Flintlock Fantasy now. But at the moment, it was just a massive panic on my part. Mm-hmm. This is my whole shtick that I'm going to base my career off of. And someone else is also doing it at the same time.
1: That's actually, you've largely become like, at least in the circles I'm talking to, like the touchstone for Flintlock Fantasy is Powder Mage in your various series. And I'm, you know, genre kind of means everything, different things to everybody. For you, though, does Flintlock fantasy need to have that narrative focus on, you know, warfare and things like that? Or no, anything that has those kind of Flintlock arms in it, would you call that Flintlock fantasy?
0: I mean, that's a great question because you've got like, like uh, Brent Weeks has some Flintlock technology in his books, in the Lightbringer books. Brandon has done Flintlock stuff uh, in the, um, is it? uh is it the 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 sequel series to the to Mistborn Yeah,
1: era 2, yep.
0: Yeah, and so so like it's something that has been around before, but like it seemed like the actual subgenre, you know, in air quotes, uh kind of appeared when I came onto the stage. So that was kind of a weird place where I didn't invent it, but I just happened to jump in there when there was I guess a little bit of a, a surge of it.
1: It seems to me it's almost like the Napoleonic angle is what makes it Flintlock.
0: Yeah. And, and I think to answer your question, it's like, a, I do think that it that there kind of has to be that military angle to it because, you know, that's the implication with Flintlock. You know, you're talking about the type of weapons your soldiers are going to use. Uh, but I guess, I don't know, I guess in my head, I've always defined Flintlock as, you know, a Flintlock fantasy as anything that is primary, primarily Napoleonic. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I I think I agree with that.
1: It's you did it so well, and I I have to ask, and the answer has to be yes to this. You've read the Master and Commander series, right? And you're a fan of that series.
0: I've I've never read it. I've seen the first the the only film. I saw okay. the film, and the film is amazing. I love yes, it. <laughs> uh, no, it was it was almost all from Sharps rifles, and oh, okay. and it wasn't. And uh, it, it wasn't even the book series. It was the TV series. Uh, I did read. I've read a bunch of the books since. But I, it was the TV series. We got it like my wife and I had like not been married very long. And we were trying to find something to watch together. And, and she's like, oh, I, I remember this show that my grandma used to have me watch with her, you know, like 10 years ago or whatever. Uh, we should check the library. And the library had like a box set of VHSs of uh, Sharps rifles. And man, I was like halfway through the first episode and I'm like, holy crap, I'm doing an epic fantasy like this.
1: <laughs> it's amazing when something hits you like that where you're just like damn okay this is where i want to go um for me it's i've always been a fan of sherlock holmes and stuff like that but i've always wondered like he's way too perfect like sherlock in real life would be far more messed up than he is in the books and so that's why i i spoiler alert for my books i put a sherlock character in there, in there and then i kill him because it's just like there's no way that person would be stable or able to function enough to like be alive like they would absolutely if you're that level of intelligence and a sociopath um you're you're gonna die and so that was kind of my approach to him because it's like he's too brave he's too stupid he's too bullheaded well he's a brilliant genius um especially in like a dark fantasy world because if you run into a character who has like a glock morality, their, their solution is going to be, well, I'm just going to kill you. You're too smart to be around. So I'm just going to kill you now. And I find that to be like, every time I read like the original Sherlock Holmes books, I'm like, why wouldn't Moriarty just shoot him? (laughs) Wouldn't Moriarty just have someone blow his head off and be done with it?
0: Right. And it is funny, like, because you see a lot of people that write these days have that response to things that they grew up with and things that they've read and loved. And they, they want to play with the same, they want to play with the themes and maybe put a more realistic bent on on it or you know whatever mm-hmm. um but it's it's kind of funny how we all have that those thoughts going through our heads of of i love this thing but i feel like i could change it a bit and do something a little different and that's cool I, originality is dead <laughs> like that that is that is cool is that so is that in breach of peace your novella mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, Breach of Peace, it's, uh, and then the character is also the second book that's about to come out in December, goes back and follows uh, actually that character's perspective through the same events of Breach of Peace, because I've always loved that kind of detective noir approach where like you get the unveiling, but it's always in those old noirs, so hammy and campy of someone just monologuing. So I was like, what I'll do is I'll write the story where you're left a lot of questions, and instead of just having someone monologue, let's go back and refollow it through their steps in an even bigger book um which some people really like that setup some people really hate it um some people have been very like it feels like you're trying to clean up which it is but it's a planned cleanup so i i get the frustration but i'm i'm happy with it um but a take on the character that was so good it almost scared me out of doing it was uh Elizabeth salander from the girl with the dragon tattoo oh
0: yeah, she is great. such
1: an outstanding reinvention of the sherlock type that is in the similar vein i was going for that i was like i why would I even bother writing this? Like she was perfect for what I thought of like a mentally unstable, damaged, super genius
0: who's solving crimes would be. See, I've never actually thought of her as a Sherlock type character, but I i guess you're right, man. I, that's interesting. I like, uh, I, so I have not, that's another one where I haven't actually read the books, but man, I love the Danish ver. Is it, it's Danish, right? Mm-hmm. The Swedish, I believe the danish films uh the northern european films <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe they're
1: swedish but in the books it's a lot more in her head you're figuring out just how smart she is and in a realistic take on a modern sherlock she's into tech and computers which i feel like would naturally fit that brain very well um and it's about how exploited she is how taken advantage of and it's it's awesome to see that and that's that is what how society really does treat people who are kind of in that spectrum because it's it's if you're that smart, there's usually other things that are lacking because you still have the same brain. So there's limitations. Um, and so the science behind people, like I did a lot of reading of the science behind people who are savants. They almost always have huge drawbacks because their brains just built different.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I it's it's interesting because you can get into that. I mean, especially like with that character in particular, you can talk about, you know, how does trauma to shape someone's, you know, shape their, their physical life, but also their mental life and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a weird place to kind of play around. in. I think today with kind of the current discussions on mental health and things like that, but, but also still very interesting and, and people, I don't know, I th- I think, uh, like that's the reason that Sherlock Holmes has, you know, like endured so hardcore is that it's fascinating to see a character like that, and you get him every single time he's reinvented as a kind of slightly different type of character, uh, uh, you know, and and so I don't know, that's that's cool, that's fun that you're playing with that, and and so you're and you said you're continuing to play with that in the in the new book, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, in the first book. You only get his perspective for a few pages, and that's only to just give the reader a taste of how this person's mind works, which is something that like it, it's the mind is a thousand paces ahead of the mouth kind of syndrome. And so this book's actually going back and walking through his motivation uh, for why he did what he did, which is basically becoming a traitor. And the big unveiling in the book was largely because he was bored. (laughs) Like he did it because he's just like, this way of life is too uniform. It's, it's cultural erasure. It's bland. It's repetitive. So he's like, I gotta, I gotta go against this. I hate it. And so the main reason why he turned coat, he's like, this is just boring. I hate this empire. Like, cause it's so much more fun to be a part of the smaller kingdom that's coming up than the giant empire that's overthrown everything and is trying to just assimilate to their culture. And that's why his big motivation was screw this. I'm out. Um, and I, I kind of love playing with that and then the other angle to it which pulls from Sherlock and one of the big things that actually inspiration for me is like you always see these. It, Sherlock Holmes is the most reimagined character in the history of literature in terms of just shows, adaptations, thousands of takes on this character who has had influence that is far reaching uh, beyond what a lot of people think and I wanted to just actually like okay what this actor would do for this performance so I literally was like okay it's going to be what I think idris elba's performance of sherlock holmes would be like and that's what i wrote um because i i also am someone like you or i watch something and that's just as big as inspiration for reading something um, which has been amazing i've talked to a lot of authors and i would say 50 50 they're either inspired by books or movies which i didn't think going into it
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i'm very much uh um visual stuff stimulates my desire to write um you know reading does as well but but visual stuff does it a little easier for me uh and and i just i don't know i've always i i guess i i always kind of take things that i see on screen and then and then that kind of just triggers the ideas and kind of keeps them moving and and it's you know because with writing you don't you don't want to run into that like trap of being worried about plagiarizing somebody um like oh am i stealing the way they did this idea mm-hmm. uh but that I, I feel like the translation from you know that visual medium to you know the written medium is y- you're gonna you go through enough of a change that it it it's not as um it's not as big of a fear I guess.
1: Well, I, I'm curious, I'm fascinated by what your take on this is going to be because it's been something I've never said. I've never had the courage to say in a video, but at least if I can bounce it off you, I can either be told I'm right or wrong.
0: Um, you do know I'm recording this, right?
1: <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, let's go. Um so okay, me, just making sure. When it comes to basically every fantasy author is guilty of ripping other fantasy authors off to a certain extent. It is an extremely incestuous genre in terms of ideas. It more comes down to are you doing it respectfully? Like I think Jordan took just as much from Tolkien as any author's taken from any other author, but he did it with an extreme reverence to the source material, and he, you know, changed enough that it felt creative. Whereas opposed to certain authors have just flat out like lifted stuff, put it in their material and they don't pay much attention to it. They don't flesh it out. They don't treat it like it's a natural element of their world. It's just like I took this thing. It's here now. And that's kind of the big difference to me. Because to say like no fantasy, no good fantasy authors take some other fantasy authors. Just not true. Yeah, totally <laughs> not, true. not true. Yeah. So you think I'm in the ballpark there?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think so. I, I I feel like I almost would get even less philosophical with it like in terms of, you know, being respectful to source material and stuff like that. I, I don't know. I guess I don't, I don't think of it. I think of it more of if you're going to steal something, the respect you show is making it not look like you stole it. And I guess that's my take on it is just, just to not, you know, at least make it, at least put your own twist on it. At least Mm -hmm. do changes that, that people aren't going to immediately go, Oh, yeah. I mean, like, like, the good example is that all the epic fantasy that I grew up reading in like the, you know, set from the 70s and 80s, and early 90s was kind of like every single one had a race that was definitely elves. And you're like, can you like, at least file the serial numbers off of this? (laughs) And and you get it, in some cases, it's filed really well. And in a lot of cases, it's not. And you're like, well, this is like, we are in Rivendell right now and the elves are a slightly different color. That's it. And and so, yeah, it's a, that's a funny thing though, to think about is that because it is true that we all just, and I mean, steel maybe is too strong of a word, but we're all influenced by everything that we've read and watched and done and and pretending that you're not, is i don't know that's kind of the height of arrogance
1: well i I think it for me mostly comes down to thematically does what you took make sense for you have taken like are you actually servicing your story by lifting a lot of similarities to this other thing or is it just you put it here because you like it and you think it's cool and you didn't earn it um you know building it into your story naturally i think is a really important thing and i think that's kind of what will bring a lot most fans along with you um, But it, it, I do constantly in the circles I, I run and see accusations of taking, stealing, whatever. Um, I would say most often people claim stuff is taken from the Dresden Files when Dresden Files is like I love Dresden Files, but it's not the most original thing ever. And it's kind of playing in a very uh, ripe patch where it's just a lot of ideas. I mean, literally, Jim Butcher just took the book of creatures and threw it in a series, which it services him great. But saying people stole from Dresden for me, Dresden is such a well-known set of tropes that are just done very quirkily that it's kind of outrageous to me to say like no just because it's a magical user in the modern era solving crimes that's not taking from dresden um granted there are some things that i've read where i'm like okay you were inspired by dresden they have the snarky sidekick and all this stuff and they're i'm like okay now you're really treading that territory um but you know it's it's i'm very hesitant to ever throw an accusation of stealing in fantasy anymore, just because after I've read so much of it, even the best writers who are the most respected have stuff in their books. Where I'm like, okay, that's just from Tolkien.
0: Let's <laughs> just right.
1: took that. Got it. Um, and there's certain stuff that's described to Tolkien that it's not Tolkien's. Like Tolkien did not invent elves. Period. Yeah. He did not. Um, and people say that all the time. No, <laughs> there's a reason why you can say elf and you can't say hobbit in your book. It's because he did make hobbits. He didn't make elves. Um, simple as that.
0: Yeah, it's it's all I don't know the argument of where did where did things come from? Where do they originate? You know, like who? Um, you know, ownership isn't quite like you know not not ownership in terms of you know what we think of as physical property, but I guess like an intellectual ownership of you know particular things. Like man, it's it's really hard to trace. You know, because because yeah, like you know Dresden Files is held up as kind of the kind of big urban fantasy of the straightforward I don't know, I wanna almost say because I'm I am vaguely aware that there is a massive market of much more female centric urban fantasy, uh, that I don't really know anything about. And so I almost wanna say Dresden Files is kind of the male centric urban fantasy. Uh but but like, man, it's yeah, it borrows from everything, you know, like that that came before it and that you'll you've seen and Everything else is borrowing. I, I'm sure that, you know, staff writers on supernatural have read freaking Dresden files, you know, yeah, that's, like,
1: that's apparent.
0: <laughs> that is very apparent. It, um, it's, it's all crossing. It's all cross pollinating in a way that if you want to make accusations of stealing, it has to be very specific.
1: It, it really, it really does. And it also comes down to like, does the person have a serial habit of doing it? Or is it just a couple things here and there? Um, and that, that's kind of a big part of it as well. I mean, and I've, you know, being the book reviewer I am, a lot of people dissect my book and try to see where I pulled influence from. And I think I deliberately made a lot of choices to try and avoid that. Like, I'm not writing medieval or any kind of fantasy like that. I'm writing a detective urban flintlock fantasy, partially because I hadn't really seen flintlock cops running around in a magical world. And I was like, all right, let's try to do that. Um, but even then, people are like, oh, he's he's clearly lifting passages from Stephen King. He's wr- stealing writing styles from this. And I'm like, okay, if you're saying I'm writing like Stephen King, I'll take it. You're wrong, but I'll take it.
0: <laughs> well, I, and that was one of the things I really wanted to ask you about, is that, that you have now experienced both sides of the reviewer kind of ecosystem. How do you feel about that? So I
1: think uh, the reviewer ecosystem is very difficult to talk about without making people mad. Because there's no cohesive philosophy on either side. Half the reviewers want to have a dialogue with authors. The other half think there should be none. I fall on the former, not the latter, but I get the perspective of the latter. Um, I found even the most harsh feedback not hurtful, just useful if it seemed genuine. Even if someone was giving my book a one-star review saying it was terrible, as long as their feedback was genuinely critical, I was taking notes and being like, oh, this is this is good. I like this. Um but then the, there's the stuff that's like five star reviews that are clearly like this person didn't read the book they're just gushing about me and I'm like this is useful I don't feel like I earned this. Um and it's kind of just the the only stuff that hurt was when they were clearly like I just hate this person let's attack him. <laughs> like let's just crap on this guy I don't like. Um I I wish I could say I have one answer to solve like some of the drama we've seen happen between authors and reviewers but I Really, the biggest philosophy for both sides is just don't be an ass, just be nice, just be honest and don't take things personally, whether you're a reviewer or an author, because you have to understand you are talking about something that people have probably spent years of their lives crafting, but the review is still something you got to respect because it's that person's opinion. You can't tell them that they're wrong. Um, unless they clearly did not read the book, which happens a surprising amount of time that people (laughs) leave a review and they say things. You're like, that's not in the book. I don't know what you're saying. This is wrong.
0: Um, But you know, it is what it is. I've, I've gotten a couple of trade reviews where it's so obvious that they either skimmed or did not read most of the book. And, and when it, when it comes to like blog reviewers, That's fine. Whatever. They're trying to get content out. But when it comes to like, you know, trade reviews that like determine whether libraries buy my book and stuff like that, it genuinely gets a little infuriating. It's like, man, okay. I understand that they put six books on your desk this week and told you to review all of them, but like, this is going to be in Kirkus. So please, (laughs) I don't actually remember whether it was Kirkus. I don't think it was, but like, that's an example. Like you get frustrated by, I was like, OK, man, yeah, I try to try to at least make it look like you read it.
1: The most clear cut example of that I have is there was someone who in the review talked about how I tackled themes of parenthood. There's no children in my book except for a kid who's hung in the first paragraph. <laughs> like that's There's no kids. There's no children at all. There's no talk of being a parent. There is nothing. And they're like, he really got in deep to like the parent child dynamic and I was like I what There's n- the people the characters
0: don't have kids like what are you talking about maybe that reviewer is really big on infanticide
1: I guess I well they didn't even b- mention that I, I my assumption is they opened the first page looked at it saw the mention of a young boy and then went okay and then just that what they were that was done um, but literally that paragraph is talking about how like he's hanging from a chain above, from a window like he's dead <laughs> Like that's the only time a child is mentioned um, so I, in book two, there's a moment where it looks like a child character might become important. And then I just have them written out and like screw off. Cause I was like, no, I'm never, I hate kids. I'm never going to be a focus in my book. I hate writing children.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's,
1: that's funny. It's a real skill to write children. Well, it is very difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's weird. And even the kids that I put in my books tend to not have a lot of page time. Um, you know, I don't have children. I've got a lot of nieces and nephews. So I, I kind of vaguely understand how children, you know, like exist, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess, uh, yeah, that, like you said, that's a good, that's a, a skill that you, that people kind of need to learn and uh, foster
1: there's like the three faults of writing children making them hyper smart making them super stupid or just writing them condescendingly where it's like oh, little kid can't think for anything you have to have that balance where they do seem kind of naive but they're not totally dumb and they're not too like stephen king he's known for writing very good kids stand by me like it works and you also need to have that like childlike misuse of foul language, but it's still like not too bad. Like, cause every kid when their parents aren't around swears, like that's just, that's a universal truth of childhood. Definitely. Um, so it's, it's really, I've, I've actually really looked into it and there is so many like papers and books about how to write kids and all their advice is different. I gave up. There's not going to be kids in my books. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's tough to kind of, I think it is tough, especially as a new author to learn what you're not good at. And, and whether you want to put the energy into learning to be good at it or to just kind of say, yeah, that's not a thing I'm going to deal with in my books.
1: I, I'm, I'm decent at action is what I've learned. And I'm really bad at slow scenes. So now I've tried to like make myself write more slow scenes because I'm super descriptive. I like to really set the stage and all my beta reader feedback is like, why are you describing this room so much? Stop. Like it is. <laughs> I don't need to know all these details. And I'm like, but Robert, George robert jordan made me this way
0: um yeah so i didn't want to spend like our entire time talking about it but we are recording this the day after the first trailer for wheel of time Mm -hmm. and and i know that that's huge for you and your fans uh like like a lot of your videos
1: are wheel of time Uh, i try i tried not to bring it up i went in this thinking don't bring it up and i've brought up wheel of time twice now because it's it's on my brain
0: (laughs) of course it is And, and anybody that works in in like the corner of genre fiction that is epic fantasy, like Wheel of Time is kind of omnipresent. It is it is like Game of Thrones in that sort of, everybody has at least, you know, read the Wikipedia page. You know, if you are an epic fantasy fan, you're vaguely aware of this thing existing and you might probably will be a huge fan of it um, or, or you'll hate it for some reason, you know, yeah. the way epic fantasy fans can get. Uh, it's but, it's one of those series that also has just stood the test of
1: time so well i mean there's a lot of series that are popular for a decade and then disappear entirely and it's just been one that's it's still popular it still sells from what i know they're still even without the show they were remarketing it new editions coming out left and right um which i i, 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 I do, do think that magic sauce. Sorry about I, I
0: think that there's something probably the fact that brandon finished it and now he is pretty much the biggest epic fantasy author out there uh you know him probably him martin and Rothfuss and you know, Brandon is, you know, by far the most prolific. Uh, and so, so I I think there's part of that is that Brandon is very much still in the public consciousness, um, Mm -hmm. as being a a section of wheel of time. Um, but it is, it's good. And it's, it's like, it was like the formative epic fantasy of like all millennials childhoods, you know? Uh, and, and so that definitely creates like a it creates a thing, you know, like, so, uh, I, I had actually wanted to ask you, I have no idea if this is rude or not. How old are you? I'm 26. Okay. So you're, you're, a, you're younger than me by a bit, but not like a huge gap. I, I don't know your age. So I, don't know. Yeah, I'm, so I'm 35, uh, okay. so, but like, that's not, I, I wouldn't consider that a massive distance. We're
1: both millennials. We both, uh, I almost just said something really weird. We both have the same childhood,
0: you know, era. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so I I do think yeah there's there's a lot about Wheel of Time that just kind of sticks around uh, mm-hmm. and and it's funny because I was tweeting about this a little bit yesterday that watching the trailer for me was very weird because I so weirdly I have never finished the series I I think um, book ten came out when I was seventeen and that was the last one I read and uh, and there was I, I think because book eleven came out when I was in college and I just like didn't have the money to buy one uh (laughs) ain't that true (laughs) yeah and then i think i got really depressed because robert jordan died and i was just like oh it's never i'm not gonna bother uh i remember and then and then when brandon picked it up again i was like i I started a reread and the reread was so daunting that i was like okay this is probably never gonna happen
1: (laughs) it's brandon really brought something interesting to that series of course i would have preferred to see jordan finish his work but brand brandon turned out to be the guy to do it i mean he did such a solid ending and it's i i cannot think of any other even form of art where another artist has come in and finished someone else's work and fans are as happy as they are with brandon's uh finishing i mean he just nailed
0: it it's damn impressive especially for something that is so big uh you know like it's just so complicated and huge and and it like Like I I, watching that trailer yesterday, I kind of had these conflicted feelings of, yeah, a part of me had been like, oh, I left Wheel of Time behind 16 years ago or whatever. (laughs) But there was another part of me that was like, man, I used to have an encyclopedic knowledge of this series. And like I could feel like the cobwebs like, you know, in the back of my brain kind of like shimmering and going, oh, man, you remember this. This is amazing. (laughs) Like, so it, it was a very complicated be a trailer watch for me <laughs>
1: well I, I i'm curious so you and you and i are both millennials i think by definition um do, so for me i i it took me until i got into this job and started doing a lot of thinking about my influence for fantasy at least commercially during our childhood the biggest fantasy franchise was pokemon that's the biggest fantasy franchise in terms of d- units sold and stuff And I think that's what caused the diversification of fantasy we're seeing now from writers of this era. Because, you know, if you were writing fantasy in the 60s, you were influenced by Tolkien and your peers. Now, if you're writing a fantasy, you're influenced by, you know, we've gotten fantasy coming over from all across the world, all these different spins and takes on it. And the Wheel of Time I see as kind of one of the first examples of that. It really feels like it was pulling from around the world and taking sci-fi ideas and weaving it into the lore, all kinds of stuff that had been done before, but not in a truly epic, huge fantasy like that. And I think that's part of why it's aged so well is because so many people pick it up and they're still seeing themes that authors are writing today. Um, it definitely hasn't aged perfectly. Like I'll be the first person to admit that. Wheel of Time has some rust that is coming in, um, but it, it's, it's amazingly influential when we really start talking, especially to authors of today
0: yeah no definitely it's it's like a big a big part of uh you know because even though people even the authors that didn't read it like like i was saying before they're still very aware of it um and it, it just is such a presence in kind of our you know just in, in our little corner of publishing and 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 in, yeah and in, in a fandom too I was kind of curious about your thoughts on on the idea of fandom, because even when I was younger and I read voraciously, I never really got into fandom. I I spent a summer writing Wheel of Time fan fiction that I like when I found one of the early websites that had that and and I I enjoyed it for a few months. And I but then I quickly realized that these kind of these communities aren't really for me mm-hmm. but like that is part of your bread and butter is kind of fandom and the people that come and watch your videos and and want to discuss these things and i i was curious how it feels to to take your fandom and this kind of goes back to what we were talked about earlier of taking your hobby and turning it into something you do for a living how does that feel to take something that that is like an exciting not just a you know let's watch TV tonight, but something that you really get into and then take that and then turn that around and now it is something you talk about for money.
1: Well, I I imagine you're going to have a similar experience where you can still enjoy stuff, but this part of your brain is always taking this more analytical approach. Like part of your brain just feels this need to pick apart themes and intent and you're really nitpicking through, which in certain books definitely can take away from the enjoyment. Some, I know a book is really special when that part of my brain is completely turned off because I'm like, oh, I can't even think about that. I'm just so in the moment. Um yeah, Greenbone Saga did that to me where I couldn't even think critically. I was just so like, this is awesome. Um, and so that's when I really know something special, but fandom is a concept. I mean, I have had and fans, Wheel of Time fans, Lord of the Rings fans, One Piece fans, Supernatural, the whole gambit come and be a part of the channel. And I originally rejected the idea that like there like there are attributes to fandoms. And obviously there are fans who are casual for everything. There are extreme fans for everything. But there are definitely fandoms where there's something about that franchise that incentivizes this zealot like following. Star Wars is the prime example. I mean, they literally have political rallies. They have like star Wars rallies where like people show up and are just going nuts for nothing. And it's, that's their fandom now. Um, you know, there's obviously casual star Wars fans. That's, That's fine. Um, but I've, there's also like, I've found powder mage fans to be very, uh, into the, the nitty gritty of the books. Like your fans are very like, Oh, this is Napoleonic here. This is what he's pulling from here. They love all the influences that come in but they're not super preachy. Like I've had Malazan fans are like, you have to know the gospel of Malazan. And if you don't like it, F you like that's, that's Malazan fans somewhat. Um, and then wheel of time fans are, I think you kind of put it perfectly where it's like, that was, Oh yeah, that was huge for me a long time ago. I remember. <laughs> Um Sanderson fans they get angry at you if you don't watch all of his live streams. Uh oh, yeah. I can't. <laughs> I I made a video where I made predictions and people were like, "Well, at this timestamp in this live stream, you said that couldn't be a thing." And I'm like, "Sorry, I guess I missed that. I apologize." Um but the, like so yeah, there there is every type of fan in every franchise, but certain franchises just tend to have a current, a current that goes a certain way. Um and lord, I've been getting into One Piece recently and one Piece fans are the most kind aggressive people on the planet. They are hey, how's your day going? Didn't you read four more sagas this week? Isn't it wonderful? And I'm like
0: uh, yes, relax. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I I like um I I'm I'm interested by that kind of that that uh I guess social sharing of something you love as a hobby. Um it's a it, it it's it's a bizarre place because it's like I I wonder, you know, as a occasionally, you know, the analytical business side of my brain will be like, how can I tap into that? How can I create something like that? Um, But I, I always end up running into the same thing where I realize that if I try to analyze it too much and try to actually create around the idea of someday having a fandom, I just work in circles and it's, It's not going to end up anywhere because it's not natural.
1: I find the biggest commonality between franchises that get those fans who just talk about it all the time and can't let it go are the authors who mastered the iceberg approach of just putting things that have massive implications. And that is what gets people online to just go. Um, like if you look at, you know, Malazin is probably the prime example for that. There's a lot thematically there. There's a lot that goes on, but narratively a lot's left open-ended and just implied. And I think that's what makes people just discuss, discuss, discuss. Cause like Erickson didn't even flesh out how his magic system really works that much. Cause he wanted it to be a mystery. He said that, like, I don't want you to know all of it. I made a video trying to explain it. And like the top comments are all like, don't do that. (laughs) They're like, stop. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, fine. Um, (laughs) So it, it it comes down I think a lot to that because like Sanderson's really good at that where he's always saying like all my stuff's connected but you don't know all the details yet and that makes people just go crazy trying to figure it out. You're trying to put those little puzzles in. Um, that's definitely been consistent um, pretty much in Tolkien obviously except he did didn't answer. He then did answer it all but he put it in a book that no one enjoys reading. <laughs> so it's it's still kind of up to we'll we'll ask the super Tolkien nerds about it that's uh that was his approach
0: yeah Uh, it's it's weird how you get kind of that that scale of things you know from the casual reader to the you know the really crazy reader um it was funny because I was I did Brandon's live stream a couple uh, a few weeks ago now and uh and he mentioned that he uh had uh I actually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now remembering, I'm now trying to remember whether we had this conversation on screen or not, uh, <laughs> but he, <laughs> hopefully it was on screen and I'm not saying something that we, we weren't talking about publicly. He mentioned that he was reading my new book and he said that it was really cool that I was finally going over to Epic fantasy and it, and it made a little like thing blow up in my brain. Cause I'm like, I thought I was writing Epic fantasy this whole time. <laughs> and, but to Brandon, powder mage was military fantasy mm-hmm. and uh, and from what he was saying in the shadow of lightning my new series he's like no this is far more epic fantasy than anything you've done before and i honestly like because brandon brandon spends his off time thinking about those things um and i very much do not and so it kind of made this little wire in my brain kind of go wait what 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 am i writing now i don't actually know anymore <laughs> i'm like <laughs> Like, Brandon's, like, the authority on this, so I guess he's right.
1: <laughs> well, it's, I think it comes down to that whole thing where genre is, one, it's decide by marketing. Like, that's just, like, so much of it. When I was, it felt so soulless when, like, my self-publishing, like, thing I'm going through was, like, now put in what your genres are. We recommend you do the SEO search to see which ones actually would be best for you. And I'm like, shouldn't I put the ones that actually... Okay, like there is that angle to it where you have to just rely on what the public sphere and marketing is, and that's getting more and more muddled all the time. I mean, genre is a made-up concept, right? It's just to try and categorize all of fiction, which is really a Herculean task. That's why there's just every new day, ten more subgenres are appearing, Um, and then books that have been out for a hundred years, people never thought to put in those genres, but now absolutely apply. Um, I've become so jaded with it. Like, I start to see sci fi and fantasy as the same thing. It's all just an excuse to be
0: fantastical in a way. Um, and, well, I, am, yeah. I imagine when you're making the videos that you make, you have to kind of keep all of that stuff in mind because it's, you know, YouTube is all about those algorithms and things like that.
1: Fortunately, I've reached a size where I don't have to be as obsessive about it because I can rely on YouTube to spin the wheels for me to an extent because I've fortunately thankfully reach the point where they go, okay, if you like fantasy, you'll probably like this guy's videos or you'll hate him, and we'll throw them once you'll leave a hate comment and we'll never throw it again. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's kind of that whole thing where I don't believe I, after years of doing this, I really just don't believe in genre anymore. Cause like to say that the fantasy that Neil Gaiman writes is the same kind of fantasy that Tolkien wrote just feels wrong to me. Like those are so drastically different. Are those really under the same label? I don't think so. Um, American Gods is not the Fellowship of the Ring.
0: <laughs> a little bit off. Yeah. yeah.
1: I would say he's way more similar to Stephen King, who I say, if you're going to have these labels, then yeah, Stephen King's a fantasy writer too, which people bulk at, but I don't. He's he's putting ghosts and ghouls and goblins. Now, if you believe in ghosts, we have to have a whole other conversation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it gets a little... It does. It gets a bit markety. You know, I, I try to be very generous in thinking of, okay, this is, you know, genre is a way for people to be able to find things similar to what they already like. Uh, exactly. and I'm, I'm cool with that, but it does, it does get a bit soulless, doesn't and, it?
1: And it also comes down to the reader. Like, Oh, if they like this one angle of a book, then there's a book that's in a similar genre that probably isn't going to apply as well. Like if someone really loves dresden files for the detective aspect if i then said oh you like that fantasy book here's rothfuss that's probably not what you liked about dresden files so i'm i'd be way more accurate in giving them uncanny collateral which i think has a lot more like tonal similarity there for them to go on over into um and you know abercrombie god is he really a fantasy author there's so <laughs> minimal fantasy in there i love everything he does but it's just I wouldn't give that to a Cosmere fan because it's not the same thing. Attention, tone, like thematically, it's all so different.
0: Yeah. Do you find when you're writing that you think at all about, you know, what kind of a, what kind of a mix mash maybe you want to create? Do you like, like for instance, like when I started promise of blood, uh, there was a very definite thought in my head of, I kind of want to create something that is, that is uh th- that, that is content wise right between Brandon and Joe Abercrombie.
1: Wow. You nailed that. Sorry. And,
0: <laughs> thanks. But like, that's what I was aiming for. Do you think about that kind of thing?
1: Um, yes. Due to like what we talked about before where I had inspirations, like I wanted to do a Sherlock type thing. I wanted to do kind of a noir, you know, Flintlock urban fantasy. Um, but at the same time, the, while I was actively writing, I was never thinking about, I need to fit in those walls. I'm a very just, follow the narrative writer i don't plan much outside of just like bullet points that i want to get to um and that was actually one of the major criticisms for breach of peace that i agree with there's like one fantasy element in all of it <laughs> and it's very minimal and people are like why did the fantasy guy not write a fantasy book and i'm like oops <laughs> I'm like, maybe if i had been thinking i would have put more fantasy in there but there's one character with fantastical abilities in the whole book and they're in the last like 20 pages
0: that's it. Yeah. One of my, one of my like little, uh, things that I, I have a rule for myself is that the first book in my, in a new series of mine, uh, has to have within the first page has to mention magic in some way just to help establish the kind of universe that we're playing in.
1: I would have loved to have gotten that advice because man <laughs> was it, I had some people who were like, apparently didn't know who I was who picked up the book and were like, why did this suddenly become fantasy? And I was like, Oops,
0: <laughs> my bad. <No. laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a, a what? A couple of years too late.
1: <laughs> well, you know that's, that's part of the learning experience. But that's actually a big question I wanted to ask you. You are someone who is writing in multiple subgenres of fantasy. You've written big boys to slim boys, and you've kind of gone all over the place. How is your process of writing evolved? Are you now still kind of feeling that pressure when
0: you sit down more than
1: ever, or are you kind of, okay, I can do this. I got this. Let's get the next one out. Like, how does that go for you?
0: Oh man, I, the pressure is different. I think the pressure is, is higher, uh, but it's different. Um, I talked a little bit on this podcast in an earlier episode with, West uh, Wes Chu about this, uh, where you get to a point in your career where you realize that you're actually quite good at writing, but you also have narratively in your head, you can see this massive web of threads going in every single direction based on every single decision that you make as an author. And so you reach a point where you're no longer sitting down and saying, oh, I don't know what this next scene will be. I'm, I'm stuck on what to write. You're sitting down and saying, crap, I have 19 different ways I could take this scene. Which one of those am I actually going to do? uh which one is going to be most efficient and is going to do what i want with the biggest gut punch and all that stuff and and i think that is where the pressure changes is that that i i now sit down and think ah man okay what where am i going to go with this of all the choices that I can see laid out in front of me.
1: It, it It's almost, I think, I think a lot of people have a misconception on writer's block where they think it's, you can't come up with ideas. I find writer's block to be too many ideas. Yes. You just have so many paths and it's like, especially if you're trying to do a series, because if you commit to a path and then like on book seven, you realize that was the path that couldn't get you there. Yeah. Damn. Um, that's, 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 that's I've already had that in Rebels Creed where i made a choice and breach of peace where I'm like, that was the wrong choice. That was the wrong choice. Damn it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and if you if you read my first trilogy carefully you will notice the threads that I dropped after Promise of Blood that I realized yeah that wasn't actually quite working for what I'm trying to do uh and 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 it's it's a weird thing for me as an author to look back on uh to to say oh wow yeah that was a thing that I was going to flesh out and then it kind of sucked and I didn't actually like it once I started reading writing the sequel uh and I think I think that the more the more you get into it, the more experienced you write. Uh, you become with writing sequels, the, the more natural it will, it will feel and the, the fewer of those mistakes you're going to make. I had an
1: author give me a recommendation for solving that problem that I've taken to heart and I think is the greatest thing. I, I, I write characters in a similar way to them where I, I will create a character with an intention. Like, I, this is a character I want to explore this idea with, with this theme, and they'll do this. And if that thread, I'm like, oh, this is not going to develop. It's just a wonderful opportunity to kill some people and hurt your readers. Yeah. Just just kill that character in a miserable way. And then you can drop that thread and it's justified because they're dead and you hurt people. And as you know, the more you hurt your fans, the more they'll buy
0: your books. You know what? I actually struggle with that. I I feel like I, I don't think I'm cruel enough to my characters to really be like the next breakout massive success. I feel well, like I you really inflict emotional trauma on a lot of your characters. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> See, I don't think I do though. I feel like I don't do it enough. I like, I read some of the gut punches and stuff like that in some of those books. And I just think, Holy crap. Like I, 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 I like my characters too much to do that particular thing to them. Um, although I'm, I'm wrestling with something. I won't say it because the book's coming out in like, you know, eight, nine months, But like, I am wrestling with something right now that I've set up in book one of this new series that is a major gut punch change of directions. And I'm not 100% sure where I'm going to take it yet. And it's, but I've got, uh, I'm starting to plan book two. And I'm like, oh, do I, do I lean in to how incredibly emotionally cruel this thing is? Or do I shy away from it? And I know that that in terms of fans and narratively it's better to lean in but like there's part of me that just doesn't want to you know
1: i have to shut off all empathy for all my characters when i write
0: i just i make myself not care about
1: them this but like there's a character i put a lot of myself in and then i like while i'm writing i'm like i hate this person i'm like i want to hurt them like it's my approach <laughs> to it because they're they're a tragic stories, so i have to do that and then like i have my mom reading like the draft and she got back to me and was like this reads a lot like you and i'm like yeah and then she's like and you did that to him. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, okay. <laughs> she's like, That's a lot and I'm like, it's not, it's not, not their stand in. It's not supposed to be me. They just have my anxiety. And she's like, Oh, you still seeing that therapist.
0: <laughs> right, right. You get that, that worried text message at 2am. Are you okay? I feel like Joe Abercrombie probably gets a lot of those. Um, <laughs> I, w- I would imagine, you know, but, but Joe lives for that stuff, you know, oh, yeah. like I, I absolutely adore his, his books and i i've actually gotten to hang out with him a couple of times and he's just he is fantastically fun but he also takes a huge amount of glee in that whole thing and i i'm a little jealous of that actually
1: well he's wicked there's no other way to put it he's a wicked writer like where he will just brutally he he keeps the people around who you hate because he knows you will hate read for those characters and he just gets rid of everyone you like and just punishes them for being likable and not a sociopath (laughs) um well actually that that led that leads into a question i wanted if you don't mind for me taking over your podcast and now interviewing you i don't i don't know hey yeah man
0: i'm supposed to be talking to you you have me on your thing <laughs> <laughs> you're always welcome uh but that no no shoot
1: uh so you you know you've told me you're not reading as much anymore but in terms of like the state of fantasy you're someone who has contributed to popularizing one of the bigger subgenres of it now What are your thoughts on how it's changing? Like not only with the live action adaptations, the all kinds of different cultures coming into it, the popularization of it, like Marvel, that's fantasy sci-fi like through and through, you know, as someone who grew up in the time where it wasn't as accepted, what are your thoughts on watching it come to the forefront of pop culture in a way like now
0: it's the biggest grossing movies and TV shows? You know, I I guess I don't have a hugely i i don't have a very complicated opinion on it i think that it's awesome like it's it's really cool seeing kind of the nerd culture become mainstream and and that includes you know fantasy stuff you know like you when i when my career kind of first started it felt a little bit more of a uh, yeah, I'm a fantasy author. And then they immediately imagine me, you know, in my mom's basement, in, a, in my underwear, kind of like, you know, Cheeto dust all over me. But I feel like by, by the time we reached like season five of Game of Thrones, like epic fantasy as a mainstream thing was just accepted suddenly. And that it felt weird, but in a very good way. Like
1: we got the one-two punch of Marvel Game of Thrones, which I think just bam bam put it in.
0: Yeah, and I, I I default to saying Game of Thrones because it's Epic Fantasy, but you're very much right on the Marvel thing. Uh, you know, just creating that mainstream science fantasy coolness. Uh and and having it just be, you know, people nerding out about made-up worlds, like it feels if you went back to 1995 and talked about it, it would feel weird, um, but it doesn't anymore. It's it's quite cool.
1: It it really hit home for me just how much has changed from when I was a child when I saw uh, two of my best friends from high school who were always like, you know, I think they one of them was color guard. The other was cheer, very, you know, typically not in a nerd stuff. And I saw them on Twitter arguing about Thor and I was like, what's happened? Like this is so different these are the ones who i would like say oh i'm reading crossroads of twilight from the Wheel of time when i was in high school and they were like what were any of the words you just said (laughs) now i'm seeing them being like no way captain america shouldn't be able to pick up thor's hammer and i'm like this (laughs) is so weird um i i am the anti-gatekeeper right i want everyone to be able to enjoy fantasy i love seeing anyone pick up any fantasy book the only thing that bugs me about the popularization of it is what has been done to star trek because star trek was one of my favorite franchises growing up and it's been completely decimated in my opinion i hate it now it's ruined and i want to cry i hate it it's
0: so upsetting really i like because i uh, so my friend dan wells um who's a horror author he he loves star trek and he he seems to soak in everything star trek and he you know he's had opinions on a couple of the various iterations but he generally seems very positive about what's going on with star Trek and, and I, I've never been a fan of star Trek. Like I've seen a few episodes here and there. I watched uh, the new movies when they came out. And so star Trek is one of those parts of kind of the science fiction fandom that I just don't have an opinion on. And I find it interesting that you're, that, you, that you're so bothered by where it's gone.
1: And I also want to say, if you're enjoying new star Trek, great. I got no problem with that. Keep the franchise alive. Wonderful. But I'm a next generation fan. I loved the episodes that had no action and were just debate. Like my, one of my favorite episodes when Picard is debating in court whether or not Data is a real person who should be considered a real person. I thought that was such a wonderful episode of just seeing, should we treat AI as an individual and respect its individual you know, rights and stuff? And then in the new Star Trek, they see a star ignite like millions of light years away instantaneously just completely disregarding all physics all notions of travel speed of light and everything and it just hurt me it just really hurt me to see like going from this intense philosophical debate about artificial intelligence individuality and then it's like oh we can see the star across the galaxy it just happened right now isn't
0: that cool and i'm like no no it is not (laughs) you broke physics damn it (laughs) Well, and there's something to talk about there about with the kind of the lowest common denominator kind of way that kind of the mass popular culture goes, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, I actually got I was very, I was very impressed with some of the new Marvel TV shows just in terms of their, like interest in saying, all right, well, let's we're gonna do like a, a Captain America esque thing. Uh, but we're going to talk about race and we're going to talk about, you know, kind of these philosophical problems of, you know, modern America and things like that. I thought that was super cool. Um, and it kind of surprised me because you expect everything to move towards the lowest common denominator Yeah, of, of things being simple and very simple for every single audience member to understand. And I, that, that seems like for you, that's your fear of, you know, modern Star Trek.
1: Yeah. And I, I'm very confused by Marvel in that. Where they all of a sudden are having these shows that are very thematically dense. Like even Loki dealt with concepts around growth and overcoming your your own ego. And I didn't love the show. I didn't I don't love any of the Marvel shows, but I definitely agree with you. They are way more thought provoking than like any of their movies, especially Winter Soldier. And I'm like, why isn't this in your movies? Like, it's just so not. And I'm very confused by that. I'm wondering if it's because the shows I think are mostly released to American European audiences. They don't have to worry about the censorship that goes on with like China audiences as much. I might be wrong there. I don't know. Um, But their movies just still lack that kind of thoughtful edge. And I would love to see it brought back in, but I can't think of a Marvel movie that's really made me think in terms of the way the shows have, which is strange. I did not call that coming, but like WandaVision, absolutely gorgeous exploration of trauma. Brilliant. Why isn't that any of the movies? Yeah. And
0: I guess I probably the easy answer is to say, okay, the movies are probably ten, two hours or or shorter. Uh, and, and the series are, you know, they're, they're what, f- between five and six hours long, you know, once you go screen
1: time. I reject that. Cause there's two, there's movies that are two hours long that do unbelievable explorations of trauma, mental illness and stuff. And I, I and no if I don't mean to be like, you're wrong. I just, I don't see that
0: as a way out. Cause there are so many examples of it being done yeah yeah no that's an that's an excellent that's an excellent point i i think maybe uh, like the simplistic ver- uh, answer is yeah when you put up a two hour movie you want things to just blow up you know you <laughs> want people fair. to you want people to feel like they spent thirty bucks on popcorn and enjoyed it and saw m- things that went sparkle and went home and told their friends to go see it you know right uh but when you're sitting down in you know when when I sit down in my basement in front of the big t v And, you know, with a snack and throw on something for a few hours, I'm more willing to say, oh, yeah, I want to explore something interesting, you know, like with like, you know, the binge culture, uh, you know, kind of sitting down and willing to spend an afternoon thinking about a single property, you know, intellectual property. Yeah.
1: But agreeing with you 100%, I think the most impactful moment in the history of the MCU is when the false Captain America, spoiler warning for the show that's, captain america retakes his shield he takes captain america's shield and decapitates someone with it i was like that is i wow like i did not expect that at all you have me invested and i care <laughs> like whoa because it's taking something that's been built up as this symbol and doing something that clearly is all kinds of commentary today wonderful moment And, you know, I just, I, I, I love that. It made me so excited. And now I'm excited for Marvel shows and not their movies, like their movies. I'm like, whatever, take it or leave it their shows. I'm like, what are you going
0: to (laughs) do? Let's make it fun. Now that's, that's cool. It's interesting to see how that kind of goes And, and what connects with different people. I've, I've had a lot of, you know, when discussing the shows, especially like just talking kind of, you know, uh, kind of talking shop with author friends it's always interesting that different people will totally take different things away. And some of them will walk away and say, yeah, I I just was bored out of my mind with, you know, X, Y, and Z, but Hey, I loved this other thing that happened. And, and it feels like every single Marvel show is very defined Marvel show or movie, even Um, the movies less. So because the movies you can kind of take as a single thing and say, yeah, that was a dumb action film, but I liked it. Um, Whereas the shows, like you said, they're a little more thematically heavy but they seem very divisive even among creators you know people that do this professionally
1: yeah i was gonna say i wonder if you agree with my usually the marvel movies i like the best are when they clearly let a director be a bit more loose with it like they brought in someone who's got a lot of flair to the lens and so while the movie might not be covering like super dense ideas at least it's created in a way that's just so energetic because you're bringing someone in who like this is their first big directing job which they've done repeatedly which to me is still amazing and uh you know tako for thor ragnarok is- that i mean yeah that's the that's the prime example <laughs> you know that it's so good yeah and even black panther i feel like had the same kind of energy or an author i think the director had only done like smaller horror stuff before that i'm not sure Um, And then DC took a note with Shazam. And I think that's maybe DC's best movie. And it's because it had someone behind the camera, who I feel like, was, okay, I'm going to prove my career right now. And I think that's a lot better than bringing someone in who's the biggest director around. They're going to do this Marvel movie for the paycheck, and then they're going to move on. You know, like I feel like that's very often how those directors kind of handle it. Because it's like, eh, I'm I'm don't have the creative control here, so why would I try that art?
0: Well, and you saw the same problem happened with the you know the Star Wars sequels of, oh, yeah. of of let's take the biggest the biggest directors we can find and and tell them to do a good job and also tell them to do it in, you know, six months.
1: And then I feel bad for Ryan Johnson, who's handed this thing that has no plan. I don't blame him for The Last Jedi at all, because that dude was just pushed into the deep end of the pool. And he's like, what's the plan? And they're like, look, figure it out. Um, But I've been preaching for ages in terms of the writing for Star Wars or Marvel. Hire you. Hire Brandon. Hire (laughs) Joe. Hire people who spend their lives caring about nerd crap. And that you would you would write an amazing Batman versus Superman, not the guy who wrote Batman <laughs> versus Superman, who clearly did not care about the comics. He did not care about the lore. Maybe he did. Maybe he said he did. I don't know. But he just watching that, he did not understand Frank Miller's vision in the Frank Miller comics. I'm sure people on your level, even if you haven't read it yet, you would read it, you would care, and you would adapt it in an epic fantasy way. Why Marvel isn't knocking on Fonda Lee's door or Robin Hobbs' door, I will never know. Because these people would be perfect to craft that.
0: Well, there is there is kind of there is a divide, and for some reason, like I will I'll, I will give credit in terms of like taking somebody and telling them to write a movie or a TV show uh, when they previously have only done books. <clears throat> it can translate, but it doesn't necessarily because because of the complication of uh, of creating a, a world in which not just do you have to film this with actors, but like the director, the, the you know the person translating your script to be on screen also is doing a dozen different jobs in the real world where they have to figure out how they're paying for craft services, you know, junk like that. And so so I, I do I have some sympathy in terms of, the job of a of a of a Hollywood writer is far more complex than what I do for a living
1: oh especially if you're a writer director that is a bag of holy crap that's why again I don't I feel horrible for Ryan Johnson that guy had to do Star Wars was basically just
0: handed to him this
1: billion dollar franchise and he was just I did Looper, <laughs> like that was his
0: thing. It amazed me that that happened. Well, and it's it's funny because I walked out of I walked out of Last Jedi kind of like, wow, that just killed Star Wars for me, and I I hate Ryan Johnson. And then what? Like a couple years later, I watched Knives Out and went, oh, Ryan Johnson's like incredibly freaking talented. What happened? Like yeah, what? Clearly, incredible. things happened behind the scenes with that movie that I don't understand. Because, like, I was given very, like, amazing proof that Ryan Johnson is a unparalleled director. Like, so, so, you know, like, those things, those, like, the writing by committee, you know, that is what killed Star Wars. Like, that yeah. kind of, the massive machine.
1: Which is why the next three Star Wars episodes, I want to take you, I want to put you in a room with the people who are experienced writing scripts. They translate what you put down. And that's the next three star Wars films. It doesn't have any experienced fantasy writer. I want that because I'm, I'm really tired of seeing writing credits that are people who I've just never heard of. And I'm sure they're fans, but like, if you look at their credits, like they're not even someone who's just written great fantasy movies, like, you know, take someone, take the person who wrote, um, what's the one with the teenagers who get superpowers and it's so good. Um, it's like a dark take on that. Oh, you know, I'm talking, I'm, it's, a thousand comments right now i'm i'm
0: blanking right now yeah
1: but you know what i'm talking about we're like yeah. crushing the car and stuff take that guy make him right back for, for
0: superman would have been awesome yeah there's i don't know like i it's a it's a weird it's a weird thing to talk about because you know like i said it's complex it's oh yeah. And it, it can be different but man yeah like i i do I, I one of my bucket items is writing for tv or film someday i don't know if it'll ever happen but you know, that would be dang cool.
1: I feel like it will. I feel like I'm, I think they'll wake up and they'll start hiring you guys and it'll be for everyone's benefit. I'm going to look up this movie right now. Cause it's going to drive me absolutely insane.
0: No, go ahead. On. Do it.
1: Um, I, I don't even know what to Google. Uh, teenagers, super power movie, power <laughs> movie, dark. Let's see what comes up direct. Uh, the darkest, that's not it. I have no idea. Chron- oh, Chronicle. Thank you. <laughs> It's Chronicle, right?
0: That's It sounds so familiar, but like my brain's not clicking on it.
1: Yeah. The story was written by Josh Trank who, oh, wow. Josh Trank is one of the, yeah. If you want to talk about someone who got jaded by Hollywood, he's the guy who did fan four stick and he has come out and been like,
0: I hate everything
1: about how those movies are made. They're committee. My vision was murdered and I hate it. Perfect example.
0: I can't even imagine coming out the other side of something like that yeah he's
2: the one
1: who came out and he was like they absolutely destroyed the movie i wrote and they reshot it and made it something else because he wanted to do fantastic four if i remember correctly in a body horror way which if you look at fantastic four would be a great approach for that well yeah and the studio was like no it needs to be happy and plucky and he, so now there's that horrible total clash of like those two visions trying to mesh
0: so so now all we have is the fantastic four from uh uh the fake fantastic four from venture brothers
1: it was also the nineties movie. Right. That like, uh, that was like so horrible that it
0: was never legally released. <laughs> oh yeah. Gosh, that was, it was so bad. Oh man. No, that's, that's crazy. I, uh, man, I feel like, uh, I keep losing my train of thought cause I want I want, I'd super want to talk to you about like a bunch of the stuff from the YouTube right channel that you're like massively successful with, but we've also gone quite a long time. Uh, do we, do you have a few more minutes? Oh yeah, absolutely. Go right ahead. You're good. Okay. So, so I was really curious when you like, so your content production is fairly prolific, like, and that feels as someone who puts a book out like once every what, 18 months or something like that, like the idea of putting something out every week, um, you know, this podcast notwithstanding, (laughs) um, does that. How do you kind of deal with that creative energy versus trying to do your own writing on top of, on top of that?
1: Um, flat out, I'm very open and honest about this. I am an unhealthy workaholic. Like I, w- I love working 12 hours a day, six days a week. And it's only been recent that like I've had to pull it back to five days a week. I still work 12 hours a day, but it's five days a week. Um, and it's because I just love what I do. I love working. And there is a lot of stress with it, though. I mean, I am on medication for stress and anxiety because I have to be but I, I genuinely love every second of it you know and I'm there's also an extreme advantage youtubers have where I am doing a bunch of different jobs so I don't get tired of them like I'm an editor I am a producer I am a in front of the camera person I'm a writer I'm scripting I'm noting I'm reading I'm reviewing so it's it's not really the same thing every day which is really good at keeping those wheels going like if I was just editing I want to blow my brains out Um, but because I only do it five hours of the 12 hour day, then yeah, it's a lot more fun and energetic and I can be creative and while I'm shooting, I'm thinking about what I want to do for editing. Um, and then on top of that, I also, there is a well known issue going on right now on YouTube where being a YouTuber is actually, and I mean this literally addictive, um, because social media, especially when you're on the platform like this, gives you those dopamine highs of your videos doing well you're getting the views you're getting the content someone famous retweeted you and so you kind of feel this constant push to go further go deeper go harder and you know i for several years i've been doing this for about five now uh was very unhealthy with how i was doing it i'm still kind of bordering on that but i'm i'm at least at a point where like my girlfriend's like i can tolerate you doing it this much but please relax Um, and so it's, it's kind of just a cycle of that. So I've had people come up and want to do what I do, which is still the weirdest thing ever to have people want to do what I do. But I always tell them it took a lot of abuse for me to get here and grinding hard. Um, I think it's easier to do it now because the YouTube kind of algorithm it works is it realized fantasy content is something people want to see. So now more people are getting more recommendations for fantasy stuff thank you game of thrones and marvel um and sanderson oh my god sanderson just blows up on youtube for any if you are a content creator who wants to have an easy few hundred views sanderson um it's because also he's now in youtube so people who are related to him and making content close to him are getting recommended on his videos um his whole machine over there is so impressive not just him but the people around him i mean the people who do his live streams the technical angles behind that those things are well run Um, And so that's kind of created this environment around him where you have podcasts and channels that just kind of follow along. And that's really cool. They're in the wake. Um, And so I've seen authors try and step in and do this, too. And what they don't understand is it's not a it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Like, if you're going to get into this, you need to commit for two years of making content with no returns. I didn't get my first paycheck from YouTube until after two and a half years of doing it. And then I finally got a paycheck and it was for like $80. <laughs> so it takes a lot.
0: Well, and you kind of like, I, I, I noticed I went through a, a few years ago. I, I kind of went through, I was like, oh, I kind of became vaguely more aware of YouTube as a, like a reviewing platform. And, and so I was like, oh, well I can, I need to find out who reviews kind of uh, fantasy novels. And I, what I found out at, at the time anyways, and this may have changed a lot because I, I'm not always paying attention, but like at the time I found that it was almost entirely kind of, gosh, this is not the right word for it, but like chiclet fantasy is, uh, I'm not sure if that's that. Yeah, that's not the right word for it, but like, kind of like that, the, the book club, you know, romantic urban fantasy sort of, uh, kind of followings where you had hundreds of thousands of, uh, subscribers to these channels of, of mostly women who would review, uh, romantic fantasy and talk about that a lot. And then it was like you, with like 20,000 followers. And and you were, at the time anyways, you're the only one I found who actually dedicated yourself to you know the to epic fantasy
1: i think that was uh, i think i remember you reaching out to me around then and i was still in my crummy ohio apartment uh, <laughs> i think I where remember did you live in ohio uh, i lived in ohio from late 2016 to early 2019 i think where at i was in columbus oh, okay because i'm from cleveland
0: and i oh, cool. i moved away uh middle of 2016
1: okay cool yeah i, I loved ohio for a minute and then i got bored <laughs>
0: so i it's, came back uh, home to virginia it's quite dreary <laughs> i i love it as my hometown but man it's very dreary and especially central ohio is very boring
1: well columbus i think is a great city but you need more than just one great city yeah uh, it's, there's not a lot around it
0: it's a great city for surrounded by farmland
1: <laughs> and i always loved like driving up to it there's all these billboards that are just like you're gonna go to hell and i'm like yeah oh, okay cool <laughs> welcome to columbus
0: sorry you mentioned my home state so i got derailed oh, uh you're totally but wrong. uh but yeah so i Um, like it was kind of cool to find, well, it was a little saddening to find that the YouTube, you know, review system was very heavily weighted away from kind of my little corner of publishing. Um, but it's been really cool to watch your channel blow up. And I imagine that there's others as well that you're aware of. Yeah. So what
1: happened, I kind of got to watch this happen firsthand and I don't want to sound egotistical at all. This would have happened without me, but. I was kind of at the front of a wave of people who started doing so. And because of that, I got recommended the most because I was the biggest when a bunch of people started doing it right alongside me. Now there are dozens. I'm aware of people who just talk about Sanderson, Malison, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, they would have done it without me. A lot of them said they saw me doing it and jumped on. I'm sure they would have started regardless whether it was there or not. And I want people to give themselves more credit. But as that started happening, that, Really pulled a lot of those people from those already big talking about YA, you know, romance style novels and put them on to us. And I got to say for a long time, a huge part of my comment section was people saying, oh, I'd never read anything but YA. Then I kind of read Mistborn because I was being marketed as YA at the time. And then that got them into wider epic fantasy. And then once more people started doing that, YouTube felt that rise of fantasy in general. We also had Game of Thrones going on We and concluding which blew it up a lot because there was so much hate content and everyone knows hate content gets views (laughs) people love to hate things yes exactly uh and then we had like speculation around wheel of time there's speculation around sanderson releases you know all this the wheel of time show getting announced made it so that wheel of time was suddenly thrown in the algorithm um so it's not me that grew this stuff it's youtube that did and i just rode the wave um and then i use an unhealthy work habit to write it as much as I could uh it used to be seven videos a week I mean I'd put out one every day while I was working as a full-time software engineer and that was ooh. Ooh, I was not healthy that, that <laughs> was very not bad. Sound healthy yeah. the amount of times I got texts were like hey we had plans why didn't you show up and I had to be like oh it's three in the morning oh, no. <laughs> oops I started at 5 p.m oops
0: <laughs> yeah I promise I still love you mom <laughs> exactly
1: uh but yeah that was then I I got to uh the paychecks for YouTube started being enough to live off of. And I was like, I got to try and ride this out. And I knew the wheel of time show was coming. And I was like, if that's going to happen, I'm going to get blown up. So hey, my I, um, so I, uh, I decided to roll with it. And the weirdest feeling in my entire life was telling my boss, I'm quitting to be a YouTuber. That was yeah. strange. I bet. <laughs> a very bet. weird experience. Yeah. It's the first words
0: are, are you sure?
1: <laughs> and I <I'm> was like,
0: <laughs> yeah. And he goes, Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fantastic, though. It's like, it's cool to kind of go from that, um, you know, kind of just working the crap, you know, grind to being able to, even if it is more work, ultimately, to being able to be your own boss and do something that you enjoy. Oh, yeah.
1: It it's more work doing this than I would as a software engineer, mainly because at the end of the day, I would be done as a software engineer. Where now, like I can always do more. Like that's what people don't tell you, and I'm sure you're aware of this. Once you're your own boss, stopping is very hard because you are the source of income. You are but keeping the business afloat. So stopping doesn't really. It feels like you're stopping the whole train, and that's bad. Well, and
0: it feels like, and it's the same way both directions, stopping and starting. It just you your momentum is difficult to slow down and difficult to get going. Absolutely. And once you're in the momentum, then there's, there's often like a good place. Like I get like, I get probably about four months out of every year where I have a very healthy sort of like work life relationship. And then the rest of it is either video games or I'm like just writing massive amounts all day.
1: So you also get writer's fever where it just you have to write like it's just coming out of you and you're like, I got to get this down.
0: Yeah. Once once that momentum is going, then, yeah, I I have no problem doing 14 hours days. It doesn't bother me terribly. Um, But, you know, that has to offset those times when I have zero momentum and I just spent, you know, like five days playing Civ straight. Uh, you know, like, so I love Civ so much. That is, that is a drug.
1: Civ is a drug. There's no ifs or buts
0: about it. Yeah. 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 Some people like heroin. I like one more turn, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's great. (laughs) And it's, that's just, sometimes you got to pick your poison, right? I uh, yeah. I feel like my poison's probably healthier than heroin.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've uh, so I actually only can really write when that fever hits. If I try and force myself to write, it does not happen. I really have to sit down and make myself do it, and that it's, it, I'm not happy with the end result. But then I'll just suddenly have this day where it's like I, it's there. I gotta go. I gotta get it out. And those are probably the worst times because I won't sleep for two days and I'll just be like over my laptop and I'm like, I'm texting people like, don't worry, I'm going to bed back to writing like it's, it's really bad. But those are it, it's just the creative process for everyone's brain is completely different. Like I know Abercrombie sits down and he writes every day like workman hours. Here's the hours I write. I cannot. Do I'm that. so
0: jealous of authors who do that. It's just it's so frustrating that other people are able to. You know, just like, cause I'm, yeah, I'm the same way as you. I just can't do it. It's a feast or famine. Totally. And it's those authors that are like able to just say, oh yeah, I'm doing a work day. I'm treating this like a job five days a week. Ugh, oh, man. I, I want to strangle their stupid faces.
1: <laughs> I found I do do a little bit better if I go outside the house. If I go to a coffee shop and write, I'm that guy. I'm the guy in the corner of the laptop. I find if I change environment, it's, it's creative lubricant for me.
0: Um, it, that's the only thing that breaks mine too. It's, uh, I'm right there with you. And honestly, that's been the hardest part of COVID for me is to not be able to just go to Starbucks and spend a few hours writing to get me out of my own head.
1: Yeah. It seems COVID's either been great for some authors in terms of output or horrible for them. Um, cause they, they social authors are a thing who need to be an environment. Um, I also think it's just a good piece of advice to give you to recognize no author follows their own writing advice. I think it's more people need to realize that everyone finds their own little path to writing. There's no formula of success. Stephen King's on writing starts with him saying you need to cut your books down to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King saying that? Are you kidding me? Um, you know, it's all people give advice, listen to it, and then incorporate it into what works for you. That's my
0: mentality. Yeah, no, that's that's a great mentality. Um, that's also a great place to uh, to wind things down. But I always always like to end this podcast by asking, what's the last thing you ate that just blew your mind that you're still thinking about?
1: OK, so uh, the girl I'm currently seeing, she's uh, working in Korea right now. And so she sent me back a bunch of Korean snacks. Ooh. And there are these chocolate churro crackers that she sent me. And I was like, I these look fine. She sent me like eight bags. They did not last three days. Like this was the most unbelievable. Like it was like a, it was like a brownie, but like if you had mixed it with cinnamon toast crunch, it had like this crunch, but into like a brownie texture. And it was the sweetest, most delicious thing. If you put up Korean chocolate churro, I'm sure it'll come up. Well, and I, I old. yeah, it you can order them, but if you order them in the U S they're like $16 a bag, because they like have to <laughs> import them and they're expensive but they are the best tasting little snack ever. I housed those things. And I will, I I told her like, when you come back, you need a suitcase of just those. Like I'm going to gain 20 pounds just eating these things. And I have no regrets about it.
0: Oh man. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I love those.
1: What I've learned is other countries do snacking way better than we do. We just got sold on the brand names. And so we just stick with those now, like other countries have these creative, like new stuff coming out all the time we're slacking other countries snack way better. Like
0: I'm not going to pretend like I don't love Cheetos, but I would love a bit of a more variety. You know, yeah.
1: we just like Frito-Lay and like those huge corporations just decided these are the snacks available. They come out like one new flavor a year. There's competition overseas, man. And those were the choice snacks are at.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like when you go into like, when you go into just like a, um like a, what, what the equivalent of like a, a little corner shop is, In any, you know, in any country, uh, I think Asia is probably the like the biggest one where you walk in and it's just like so colorful and every single and there's a billion options. Uh, But but I kind of love that, you know, like that just like, oh, wow, there is everything here. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, they just like do food better. Like they have like vending machines that give you like healthy, like bento boxes and stuff over there. And like, what do we get out of vending Reese's? Like that's what you get out of a vending machine here. And it's sad. We need those like better options available. And it, I don't know. I'm trying to get more into cooking for myself. And it's, that's been horrible. I'm such a bad cook.
0: I don't understand anything. It's bad. <laughs> I've been doing, uh, I I've been trying to do like lifestyle changes where I like calorie count and I'm trying to be really conscious of like what I'm eating Uh, But man, it's, it's tough because like, like, like I told, like I told my therapist that my biggest like fear of leaving lockdown was being able to go to restaurants again, because I will just start overeating again. No problem. You know, like, like being in lockdown, once I decided to lose weight, I lost 25 pounds in like six months. But like, but like, man, that's so hard now that like once I got the moment that I stopped losing weight was when i got my second vaccine and i started going to grocery stores instead of getting delivery and i started going and getting like going through drive throughs again and stuff like that and it's oh it's so tough
1: yeah i it's i've been i'm i can't work out on my own i have to go to classes because i'm hyper competitive that's like it motivates me to keep up with that person so i that's how i do but i have this horrible problem where i will go to workout class i'll do great and then on the way home i'm like what a McFlurry sounds really good. I it, <laughs> <laughs> so I pick up like a McFlurry and I'm like, I hate this. Why am I doing this to myself? But I gotta.
0: Oh, I do the same exact thing. You know, like when I, uh, when I was doing regular game nights, like I would get a 20 piece McNugget on the way to game night. Like wh- who knows th- who thinks that's a good idea. I certainly don't, but I still did it. Yeah.
1: It's because it's literally addictive. Like people don't realize how much stuff in their food is actually designed to be hyper addictive and so it it pulls you in and like it, getting over a sugar addiction is genuinely really difficult. Like it's actually a really big hurdle for a lot of people to do. Um, And God, and talk about like scarcity of healthy options. I was in a gas station recently trying to find a drink that was not loaded with like 30 grams of sugar and I couldn't find one. I had to just get a bottle of water
0: because like there was nothing. Yeah, I switched over to pretty much I only drink tea and I drink water. Yeah,
1: which if you try to get tea in a gas station, it's like, this is an all natural tea, 40 grams of sugar.
0: <laughs> right. No, I just make it at home. I just get loose leaf tea and make it home because then I can just, you know, like I don't have to feel guilty about putting a you know, teaspoon of sugar in a cup of tea because that is like what one sixth of a single can of pop. you know? Oh, yeah.
1: And you're hydrating, which is great. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that was YouTuber Daniel Green. Thanks again to Daniel for taking the time to chat. You can find links to his social media, YouTube channel, and his books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.